Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Episode 18, Aditya Bidikar. Welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name is Len Sultana, and each and every Sunday, and also Wednesday while we're doing the lockdowns, <laughs> with a slight uh, caveat, we'll talk about that in a minute. We do talk about comics, comic cons, and con culture, and all the stuff and nonsense we get to enjoy at such events. We also have been, over the course of the this season, and sort of like the end of uh, last as well, kind of been using the, uh, the show in the absence of comic cons to talk about comics um pop culture and the uh, the art of fandom if uh, i think it's pretty much what we're, we're celebrating here on the show the thing that we're going to be talking about today is something that i have been wanting to talk about on a panel certainly at comic cons for absolutely ages purely because i think it's one of the most underappreciated aspects of comic creation People talk about the writers. Indeed, if you go to Amazon, it's all their kind of list. And you can talk about the artist. But uh, they are the scriptwriter and the cinematographer for a, um, a comic. What about your sound design? The one that sets the tone for a comic. And that's what I feel a letterer does. Which is why I'm really, really happy that we have been joined by one of, quite frankly, the busiest letters on the planet at the moment uh, my god uh, if you are uh, going into your comic book shop at the moment you're seeing his name left right and center we are joined by Aditya Bittikar hello there sir how are you hello I'm good I'm good I'm actually having a fairly lazy week so that's been fun <laughs> okay you're having a fairly lazy week in work but I mean considering I think I'm counting them I think you've got have you got two or three books out today I think three, yeah. I yeah, have yeah. The Department of Truth, number three. Uh, then there's Coffin Bound, volume two. And I think Hellblazer, number 12, came out yesterday. This is just incredible. <laughs> um, I mean, I think something that, uh, I mean, I mentioned it in my uh, the, the intro before the, the opening credits, is about that documentary, uh, which came out <laughs> at Disney+, Plus. Uh, the 616, the Marvel method. And it made yeah. it look like, um, it is apt to the wild. The letterer left very much down downstream of the whole production thing. Yeah, I noticed that everybody cool. except for the letterer was like, you just get two days. And we were all like, every letterer I know was like, two days, that's luxury. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Okay, so yeah, we're going to get into all of that. Um, but um, I mean, first things first, uh, the three questions I've been uh, using to start the uh, this particular run of shows. Number one, what is your cup of tea? What is your beverage to choice? I've got myself some PG tips, uh, which I'm going to be nursing because it's been a hell of a day. Uh, what is your beverage of choice there? Uh, I've got some water with lemon and honey in it because I've been talking quite a bit this week and I realized that I'm not used to that. So I'm yeah. using this to soothe my throat. I'm just going to say, it doesn't count as tea, but it definitely counts as a soothing beverage. So um, I'm okay with that. Question number two, um, and this is going to be interesting because 
certainly the people I've been asking the question of, you know, the artist and writer kind of aspect of comics or editors or whatever. What was your first Comic-Con? Can you remember what it was? Uh, and did you go as a pro or did you go as a fan? It was Mumbai Comic-Con and I went as a fan. Uh, I think it was it was just after I'd started working in comics, but back when nobody was actually giving me any work. <laughs> so, so I went to Bombay Comic-Con to kind of make connections and stuff. And what I realized was that everybody there was in the same boat. Yeah. So, I, mean, so I, I met a lot of colleagues, but not many employers, let's say. Fair enough. I mean, considering that we talk about San Diego, we talk about New York, that's a big show. That's difficult yeah. to make any kind of splash because it is such a huge pond. Mumbai Comic Con, um, I think the, the when I went, it was kind of half comics and half everything else. Uh, yeah. But these days, um, I think till last year, it kind of had become much more of a... Uh, merchandise and movies and video game con with yeah. eight comic book stalls like somewhere in the corner. So I kind of stopped going for the last couple of years. But before that, I used to enjoy going to the Indian comic cons. Excellent. Because the entirety of Indian comics is there, basically. Like Because sure. there's so few of us. And question number three I've been asking is, um, I'm curious to know what your answer to this one is. Um, Often when uh, comic creators go, uh, they get the chance to either sit next to or meet their idols, the people that they've grown up reading or perhaps have inspired their work. Um, has there been a wobbly knees moment, uh, a moment where things went a little bit cotton mouth and you got a little bit nervous? Uh, meeting your idols, can you uh, remember any highlights? Well, uh, I think one was uh, when, uh, I think this was 2017 at Thought Bubble. And Shelly Bond, who was who I just started working with, she pulled me into a picture with Becky Cloonan and somebody else. <laughs> and then once we took the photo, I realized that that somebody else was Frank Quitely. Oh, okay. Because she yeah, kept, kept calling him Win, and while I knew that his name is Win Deegan, I, I I kind of didn't it didn't really occur to me at the moment. And then she showed me the photo, and I was like, wait, that's Frank Quitely. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. That, yeah, that was amazing. That's one of the best stories we've had. That's fantastic. I think it's best then, because um, like I say, when we've had people on, we've asked that question, obviously it, there's some kind of familiarity with uh, people's work. Letterers don't often... Yeah, we're not get very the, well known, let's say. No, you don't You don't get the recognition that, I, I, like I said in my intro, I, I believe you deserve. So let's go for a bit of uh, a history lesson. Tell us about yourself. Uh, what was your comics reading? What was your upbringing? When, and what was your introduction to comics? My introduction to comics was probably um, this thing called Tinkle, which, um, which is an Indian comics magazine, sort of a collection, uh, so anthology kind of thing. So you, you had like four to five page uh, comics in there. And my dad literally taught me how to read with that comic. And the moment like I started reading it myself, I kind of like I read from a comic, like like a lot of other people. So after that, I think most of my reading was Tinkle, and we had this thing called Amarchitra Katha, which is like Indian mythology comics. As I grew older, uh, I think I read a total of five American comics. Maybe like there was one Spider Man uh, that I managed to track down later. Like it was the issue when the Vulture is in an old age home. Um, so there, I, I had that one issue. Then I had one issue of. Uh, something about Superman after the death of Superman and and like a couple of Archie comics. 
other than that, like we used to read a lot of Asterix and Tintin, and those were quite expensive. So uh, I used to borrow them from like neighboring kids uh, because I couldn't really afford them at the time. But then I think when I really got into comics, uh, like my family always sort of thought of me as the comics kid. Uh, <laughs> but that was because I read like five more comics than everybody else. Not really, uh, I wasn't really like a obsessive, let's say. Uh, but when I became an obsessive was, I think I was 20, 21, maybe. And I was at the British Council Library in Pune. And I saw, like, I, I, I used to read the magazine Sight and Sound. And there was one of those articles that goes like, Biff Bam Pow, comics aren't for kids anymore. And that one had, I think, Watchmen, Sin City, and Uncle Sam. And I read all of those. Like, I, I kind of tracked those down and I read those. And that was it for me. Like, after that, I was a comic book fan. And then I kind of haven't stopped after that. I think I think it's interesting that you bring up Asterix and Tintin uh, because that's um, the European style of lettering and that kind of uh, the the way that uh, you place your balloons and the way that you you kind of you, you frame the what you do. That's interesting because yeah, you can definitely see certainly with Asterix, um, and and uh, the, I can see some influence there. Why yeah, you got those flourishy like big balloons yeah. that are not afraid to cover part of the page. Even with Tintin, you had those uh, sort of scalloped squares. Like they were very intricate kind of uh, shapes. Mm. And that always was interesting to me. I, th I think the first time I realized that comics are hand-lettered was reading an Asterix book as a teenager. And sure. I think, yeah, I, I didn't really think much about it after that, but I think because I assumed that all comics were hand-lettered for a really long time, <laughs> till I kind of got into lettering myself. Listen, I guarantee there's a lot of people that still think it is that everything's hand, hand lettered. Um, oh, yeah. I like guarantee. one of my fellow letterers, I won't name who, uh, was saying in one of our forums recently that somebody in a review complimented him for the hand drawn text. And it was just like a really nice, you know, handwritten font. It is not actually <laughs> lettered. <laughs> Amazing. I, I mean, I've, I've got to ask then about how you got into lettering and why that was a career choice for yourself when it comes to uh, creating uh, comics. I mean, it's not, it's, I think it's usually the question that you often get when people sort of like ask about editors. I mean, like, how did you get into editing? It's, 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 not, it's not the first port of call when people think about um, creating comics. Where, yeah. where, did, where did the bug for, um, for lettering uh, come in? Uh, it, it actually wasn't the first port of call for me either. I once I kind of started really getting obsessed with comics, I, I think it was City of Glass that made me realize that, you know, I think I wanted to make comics because, you know, that was a novel that I'd already read. And I read the comic and I suddenly realized how much the comic added to the narrative. And after that, I started doing my own comics. Like I started writing them and uh, I met up with an artist who's still a really good friend of mine. We made a lot of comics together. Our, our first ever comic was actually a nine panel grid comic just like City of Glass and Watchmen and so on. And I had to learn how to letter so that I could letter that comic. And I did a terrible job at the beginning. Like I, it was literally like, <laughs> you know, Myriad Pro in Photoshop without thinking about like how, how it's being read or anything. And then Tony Lee, the British comic book writer, he was in Pune and I knew him because he was writing Doctor Who comics at the time, I think. So uh, he said, like, you know, is there anybody who can show me around town or something? And we hung out then. And I asked him, like, if he would take a look at the comic that I'd done. 
and he looked at it and he was like look your writing is fine and the artwork is perfectly fine like the artwork is pretty great but you've not really given any thought to the lettering um so he walked me through what i could have been doing with the lettering and he kind of talked about placement and how how i can lead the readers i through the panels with the placement and it suddenly opened something up for me and i really kind of got interested in lettering after that and i still only lettered my own comics for a really long time after which i approached an indian comic book company as a writer and they said like we don't really need any writers right now but what else can you do and i said like you know i've been looking at lettering i've been trying my hand at it but i'm not really a professional and like he he replied you know what like you're never going to know if you're going to be a professional or not till you till you try huh. so i submitted like my samples and i think he probably hired me because i was the only one who actually <laughs> knew a little bit about lettering at the time this was 2010 or 2009 so this is like 10 11 years ago and after that was when i realized that you know what there's i, I not only do i love this lettering thing it also is much more relaxing to me than writing because with writing i'm always worried about what people will think about what i wrote with lettering i know that you know what 80% i know exactly what to do the remaining 20% is stuff that i might be nervous about but then i still have a lot of people who are like i have the writer and the artist to tell me you know whether i'm doing well or not so writing uh, was not something i felt at the time that i could do on a day to day basis because it was too nerve wracking but lettering was something i could feel i could ease into and that's basically why why i kind of chose lettering as a career okay. and this was when i was 25 i think 25 26 so it's quite quite a late career so to speak can you remember the uh, the first book that you lettered where you felt that you started to get a grip on the on the on the craft of uh, lettering like i mean i think that's uh, the thing that most people don't quite grasp about the the craft of lettering the the art like you say of leading the eye around the page and kind of and the the movement of and it's not just the placement of the panels the the the, the lettering is it's a, there's a genuine skill there do you remember the first uh, book you did where you just went ah i think i've i think i've hit something there uh, yeah i actually remember it vividly because it was tied to uh one of the first times that i genuinely felt nervous about my lettering so uh my first international job was with this artist called david han who's uh done some lucifer and he did like you know the vampire comic bite club with vertigo and so i had done all nighter with him and he got me onto another project that sadly has never actually come out uh but it was basically with philip bond and ivan brandon uh who i still work with i i, I mean i've worked with both of them over the years but i did a very basic digital lettering job on the whole comic and ivan tore it apart like very politely he was very polite about it but he was like you know this is not interesting like there's nothing happening here that i feel uh, you know you're not making the you know, book come alive or anything and it it was like a cold shower it was it was terrifying for me because this was some like i felt like he hated my lettering but yeah. but i kind of gave myself a few hours away from the computer and i came back and i wrote an email to him saying okay i'm could you explain to me what you're looking for and he explained that you know i want something that looks more hand done something more organic like i want something that fits with the artwork better and 
I gave him something like six options after that. I, I, I spent the next two days just investigating what I could be doing with this. And I kind of, uh, I looked at calligraphic brushes. I looked at like, you know, properly hand-drawn hand -run balloons. I looked at different fonts and I came back and I offered him five options and we nailed, like we landed on one. And then I lettered the whole comic and he was very happy with it. And that was when I was like, I just hit on something. Like there's something that's genuinely interesting to be done here. You're not just copy pasting the writer's balloons here. It's not just about placement even. It's about personality, it's about style. And I mean, I'm happy to say that Ivan and I have worked together on like six or seven more comics after that. So I presume he's happy with my work. <laughs> he's a he's a great guy. Um, I, I think I've met him a couple. Oh, he's of fantastic. Times. He he put me in touch with a lot of my early clients as well. Yeah, I met him at Thought Bubble, and um, uh, coincidentally, uh, it was uh, he. Uh, I took a photo of him and put it put it on my I think it was my Instagram or my, a Tumblr, um, hmm. just as kind of one of the uh, the Thought Bubble. Uh, so like the, a gallery of images which I took at the at the time, and I believe it was the Indian Times uh, that <laughs> actually st stole the photo and used it on, uh, when he because he, he visited. Uh, yeah. I think it was Mum uh, Mumbai Comic Con, and no, and that they, was, they it was Pune Comic Con. I met him. And, and yeah, I, I yeah, met him there. Like that's, that was when I started when he started properly working together. Yeah, and he put yeah. it up on his on his. Uh, on his uh, Facebook or Twitter, sort of thing. yeah, I'm I'm going to this Comic Con, and I just went. That photo looks bloody familiar. <laughs> that is so strange. Uh, in, in Indian uh, Indian newspapers are very lax about copyright images and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I work I work that one out myself. Uh, <laughs> what were the books that um, or what were the? Because uh, I mean, it's in interesting as well that you say that you uh, you studied styles and you studied fonts and you kind of uh, started playing with uh, the different varieties and you looked at the the different styles. Uh, I mean, I I think the first books uh, that I can personally think of, uh, where I was definitely uh, drawn to the um, the lettering style, and it made an impact of what it was doing with the story. A lot of um, Annie Parkhouse's stuff with uh, 2000 AD. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of hers. What was being, and I don't know who the letterer was, but for the Trigon Empire. Um, because that was all handwritten as well um, uh, back in the, uh, the, the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, right. Which is, uh, I, I read the reprint, and I think they're using a font on that because I don't think I don't think it's the original lettering on that. All right, okay. Uh, and Arkham Asylum, uh, a oh. serious house. Um, Gaspar Saladino, the master. Absolutely. If anything, because I actually, the, a, it's like 90% of that book, the lettering is nice and legible and it kind of it works as um, a narrative device and then you have the jokers uh lettering which i don't know if it was the printing of the book that i had but it was slightly off because the idea was it was red over a, a white background so it kind of like it was offset and it was very difficult in some places to read um and it made you think harder it made you examine what the Joker was doing in the book. It kind of, it, it played on so many different levels. What books and what uh, letters were inspiring you when you were examining the form? Uh, it's actually like, here's a sidetrack. It's funny that you mentioned Gaspar's lettering in Arkham Asylum because, you know, there's a page in blue and green where 
Eric is sitting in a chair with his head in his hands and there's like a bunch of jazz quotes behind him. And when we were trying to figure out what style to do those in, I showed Ram uh, Gaspar's lettering in Akram Asylum and he's like, yes, that's that, that's what we need to do. I, so, I, 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 I do have some examples of your work. I, I don't uh, think I sent you that page particularly. But... No, but um, uh, certainly the, uh, we've got uh, some pieces. Yeah, this is from, uh, from Blue and Green. Yeah. Uh, which, uh... So this is all hand-lettered, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, when I started out, I think I think one of the points when I realized what different things you could be doing was uh, I was reading Robert Kirkman's Invincible and The Walking Dead, and they were both lettered by him uh, at the beginning, like before Russ, Russ Wooten took over. And they both had a different font. And I could see like certain similarities in the style because it was the same guy lettering. But I could see also how the, how the font and the balloon shapes were kind of creating different effects. And that was interesting to me. Then I think my biggest influence has been probably John Costanza, my early influence at least. Uh, so like <laughs> in, in his, uh, you know, Vertigo books like Hellblazer and stuff. And then Tom Orzikowski was, I mean, and still is a huge inspiration. I think my Hellblazer run is like a proper, it's my tribute to Tom Orzikowski pretty much. Um, but also what I noticed him doing was that he would do these, inhumanly precise letters like his his lettering was always like you it almost looks digital even now but then when he wanted to kind of create flourishes they were so organic and so fluid so then like that that combination of these very uh, robotic almost letter forms with this these human touches was very interesting to me very early on i think yeah. other than that i got to say it's Todd Klein Sandman just I mean, you read that and it's a masterclass in lettering. I mean, nobody can, there's no competition. Even even when he did Overture, like he did so many different and interesting things with Overture and he just schooled all of us in that one. Yeah. I think that like we were talking about the Disney 616 and I think a lot of people have kind of had a little bit of an eye open about the, the pressure that is put on uh, letterers, especially when it comes to time. Uh, and uh, when it comes to where you are in the process of getting a book um, out onto the shelves. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about letterers and, and lettering of comics? Well, I would say the biggest in, um, misconception is that just because we use fonts, that doesn't mean we add anything to the book. But I think with people like uh, like recently with people like Russ Wooten or Darren Bennett or like hopefully myself uh, or Hassan Utsman Allah. You know, we've been showing that even when digital lettering, you can kind of add a lot of personality and stuff. The other thing is, um, I think simultaneously creators think we, we can walk incredibly fast and people also underestimate and overestimate the time that it needs for us to do our work. Like most letterers would tell you that they might be able to letter a book in a day a book being like 28 to 24 pages. But the problem is that while we are doing that one book, we are also doing corrections on like five different other books. And that eats into your time. So you don't necessarily end up being able to do that. So when clients kind of come to me and say like, look, it's Thursday, can you give me this on Monday? I'm like, no, you're leaving me one working day. And they're like, no, no, no but you got three working days. And I'm like, no, that's not, no, I have other books. I do other books. It's fine. Like, I, I mean, 
you have to tell me in advance you have to warn us in advance like it's not a misconception but it's sort of like a like an overestimation of what what we might be able to do whereabouts in the uh, the process do you, does that um uh, that pressure and that misconception come in is it from artists and writers or is it from editorial um where, whereabouts is the the biggest no i think it's from everybody i think you can do this over the weekend <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of from everybody because everybody's really? a freelancer. Uh, and I mean, it's it's kind of true that we don't really have a life, but that's true for like all comics people. That's not just true for letters. <laughs> but I, I think people don't realize that you're doing like eight other books at, at once. So they act as if theirs is the only book that's on the plate. So they're like, no, but I'm giving you two days. And I'm like, no, you're not giving me two days because I have two other books to do. So. I think the reason is that, let's say writers work on maybe four to six books a month, an artist works on one book a month, a colorist works on eight books a month, but a letterer might be doing like 15 to 20 books a month. So I don't, I don't think anybody quite knows how to manage a letterer's time. It's, it's just a technical thing. It's, it's not, not even like a, it's not even a misconception. It's just that nobody else in the industry actually works like us. So nobody else knows how exactly it kind of goes. Yeah. Like I, I explained this in my newsletter last time, and I think I did a little thread about it as well. But here's the thing. Let's say your book needs to go on print on a particular date. You can't move that, right? But let's say the artist is five days late. I have five less days to do the work, right? Because I, you can't move the, date, move the print date for me. And the reason you can't move the print date for me because is that the print date has been decided three months in advance. And let's say if you move the print date and then, you know, retailers get to reorder their comics and let's say you lose like 500 sales, that's more money than you're paying me. So you can't really afford, like I, as a letterer can't say to a team that, look, you got to move it by a week because you guys did it late because they're going to lose more money than they pay me. It puts us in a difficult position, let's say. It's yeah. It's interesting that you you talk about the the and I, I started off. I, I I was rather glib about it about how many books you've got coming out and how many books you're doing. <laughs> I'm certain there are people who may be wanting to get into comics that uh, would consider uh, lettering as a uh, a career. <laughs> how viable is it financially? Because it sounds like perhaps you you have to do quite a bit of work to kind of uh, to get by almost. Like I would say, as you see, the part, my part, part of my problem is that I'm a workaholic. Fact is, I could <laughs> be doing, I could be doing ten less books and it would be okay. Uh, because, uh, because also, I live in India. It's the uh, cost of living here is not very high, so okay. I, I could be doing like five to six books a month and I'd be sort of okay. I, I mean, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but the thing is, I work with a lot of really good people, <laughs> and I don't like saying no to those good people. Um, so at this point, I'm kind of doing it because uh, because I love the work. the The problem is, uh, it, it's that it's a little it's it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle all the time. Like you're kind of uh, moving blocks all the time. Not the jigsaw puzzle, but Tetris, let's say. So I, I can I can imagine your t your time management skills are off the scale. Oh yeah, at this point they are. Like I was the laziest 25 year old, but I'm I'm a like an absolutely organized 35 year old. Um, so, so I'm actually, I'm actually cut, cutting down on work quite a bit. I'm, I've decided to limit my monthly work to like eight to 10 books max, but I know that I can afford that 
one because i live in india second i'm single i don't have a family to support um and third i don't really do anything else i just like when i'm not working on comics i'm reading comics so i i mean it i don't live a very expensive lifestyle so i can sort of afford to kind of cut it down to 8 to 10 i i remember like a couple of years ago uh, when i went to thought bubble a few of my friends were like why don't you move here and my response was like i would have to work on twice as many books to afford to live there <laughs> yeah I, yeah so i they can't be helped but uh let's see we get around i don't know like 300 to 500 a book based on your rate you do like maybe 12 to 15 of those a month but not all of them pay as much so it's kind of i mean it's it's different for everybody and there's a lot of overhead like we have we spend a lot of time to do that uh, what i realized this year was that i was spending i think i spend around 2/3 of my time lettering and 1/3 of my time doing everything else to just manage the lettering so that that's actually why i've cut down because i realized that if i do a if i do like four fewer books i get a lot of free time that i can do for use for everything else which begs the question then in 2020 especially when we had the period where the industry pretty much came to a standstill uh when diamond had shut the doors when books weren't getting out into stores stores weren't opening what was 2020 like for you work wise was were there still projects to work on um were things being put on hold what was what was it like for yourself in that regard i think at the time i think in april around half of my projects were put on hold but a lot of them were books that were anyway intended for later in the year so i was not really supposed to be working on them anyway out of the books that i was actually already working on i think maybe five books were put on hold the dc continued working i think around half of my image books continued working and i mean getting a little personal here i was a little bit like i i mean the pandemic uh the initial month of the pandemic was kind of depressing for me so i wasn't really getting much work done so if you look at the numbers i think uh, i was maybe there was a there was a month where i did like maybe 40 pages but that was not because there wasn't work but because i couldn't do it but right. then i recovered and i slightly misguidedly accepted a few too many books uh which meant that may was a terrible month for me so in may i think i've i may was the month where i did the most number of pages ever oh wow but that was that was due to a miscalculation uh because i hadn't realized <laughs> that i would have to do that and i mean i would say that the last 8 months were not very good november's been pretty good actually november has been quite relaxing and i've i've enjoyed myself but i would say like may to october were not fun when the industry came back like all the books that were supposed to be done they came back plus all the books that i had accepted misguidedly they came in as well and like everything that had been delayed at some point of time came back in so like july august september was like all these books that had been put on hold kind of came back and i was exceedingly overworked i i do i regret it i don't know like i think i regret the last couple of months but also like i didn't i didn't blow any deadlines but that's because i was working like 12 to 14 hours a day for a while you, 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 i mean yeah when i say you you keep busy uh, i think yeah, it's also yeah i genuinely keep busy, busy. 
Yeah, but I think it's really it shows in the books that you've done. I mean, the the pages that we've been putting up have been from, I'd say, the last two three years uh, that um, uh, we've been showing. Yeah, uh, this one's a little of. older, probably. This is what this is my first book with Martin, um, and we have another book together now, which is Department of Truths. So. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I want to talk about that relationship um, in a minute because, like I say, I, I'm working through the the uh, the screen caps, uh, and we are going to get to Department of Truth because what you've been doing with that book has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, we do actually have somebody who's watching at the moment, a familiar name, uh, David. Oh, Disney, hey, David. Hi, hello there, uh, Aditya. Thank you. First in the business, of course. Yeah, uh, and then I love working with Walt like, because, like, I mean, I, the books that I do with Walt are just they're just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I get to work with my white noise boys. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking to them this weekend, so looking forward to uh, hearing them uh, sing your praises uh, as well this Sunday. Can we talk about the relationship uh, that you have with uh, artists and writers then? And which ones? I mean, we'll, we'll, we won't talk about the, the negatives. We won't talk about the headaches. Uh, but we will talk about the uh, the, the positives and um, ones that really have shone uh, in terms of... I will actually of... say that I've been lucky that I don't think I've worked with anybody that I that I ended up disliking particularly. I think, <laughs> you know, I mean, once in a while, everybody makes things difficult for each other without meaning to. Uh, sure. But I don't think there's anybody that I feel like, you know, you genuinely made my life hell or anything like that. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I have those. Okay. I've, I've been very lucky, touch wood. But I'm certain that there'll be highlights, the ones that you know, the the working relationship has just either gone incredibly smoothly, or you've been yeah, like this is one of them. Really, you've been you've been felt really inclusive in the process. Uh, highlights. Yeah, this is this is one of them. Like Little Bird, it's uh, Darcy and I kind of became pretty good friends over the course of the book. We uh, we've actually we actually Skype like every couple of weeks, even when we are not working together. I I think. Um, what I loved about this book was that Darcy would always go like, on every page, I would like you to do one thing you haven't done before and try it out. Like if we don't like it, we'll pull back. But I want you to try out everything you can think of. And that's just such a, it's such a satisfying relationship to have. Like I have that with Ram and I have that with Darcy where like they'll, they'll always be like, no, no, don't be lazy. Just no, you're, you're not pushing enough on this. Like you got to go harder. We've been going through um, a number of the, the the projects, certainly from recent years, uh, and um, I seen there was a recent uh, tweet that you put out, and you I think you shared um, a lettering job where somebody had uh, relettered uh, the the piece for foreign market. Um, yeah. How often does that come on over your plate, and how much harder is that for yourself? I I actually don't do that. Uh, at all, no. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not very. I, I am familiar with it because uh, before I started freelancing, I used to work for a company called Graphic India in India, and I was an editor and letterer for them. And there we had a few language conversion things that we had to do, and I was in charge of those. And there I figured out, like you know, sometimes you have to make art edits. I remember there was one book, not for Graphic India. Uh, this was later. I lettered it in English, and then the creator wanted to letter it in Arabic. So they asked me not only to uh, create the empty balloons, but they asked me to flip the pages. 
Oh wow! I, you know, and flipping the pages is just not. You can't just like go left to right, and that's that's it, because there are elements that need to be turned back uh, the right way around. You know, there are labels, or there are you know people's uh, you know people are wearing let's say like a insignia of some kind. Those have to be the correct way around. So that was like a proper art correction job. So I've actually done those, and the thing is, they're thankless because uh, the amount of effort you put into them and the amount. Like the the extent to which people acknowledge it is just very divergent. Like the work is intense, but nobody even notices it, so nobody cares really. Where do you get your fonts from? How how many of them do you hand create? I mean, if if we could talk about the that kind of uh, process, because like I say, I mean, I I don't know. This is I'm, I'm, this is a masterclass from yourself about the the, the art of lettering. I mean, uh, what what is your ratio to using pre-existing fonts to uh, ones that you're creating yourself? Uh, when I started out, it was entirely fonts that other people created. And I started by building my library of Blambot and Comicraft fonts, like every other letter. These days, I've branched out into, uh, I use a lot of Google fonts and a lot of Typekit fonts because I realized that I, I've been reading a lot of older books and like books by John, like lettered by John Workman or, or Zikowski. And what I noticed is that they use a lot of plain type in their work, and nobody does that these days. So mm -hmm. I've I've kind of been trying to bring it back uh, to kind of use regular type in fonts. Um, there's a there's a book coming out called uh, Future State Dark Detective in January, I think. So I've I've actually done a lot of experimentation with type fonts in that one, and I started making my own fonts around four years ago, but sadly I haven't really had the time because I letter far too many books. <laughs> to kind of work on my own fonts more. I have five fonts that I've already started using. So the one in Little Bird is one of mine. Uh, so is the one in uh, Punk's Not Dead. And this is this one that you're showing right now is hand-lettered, obviously. And I created mm -hmm. a font based on that that I ended up using on one of the block, Black Crown books. So I have around six fonts so far. And I'm planning to kind of cut down on my projects next year and spend a lot more time doing my own font design. And I would like to get to a point where I'm like, you know, 60 to 70% of the fonts that I'm using are on my own. Or maybe like there'll come a time when I'll just say like, you know what, I don't need to use anybody else's fonts anymore. Because then I might have a library and I might have like enough fonts that will fit almost any scenario. And that's the hope. But I'm not really fussy about it because uh, I, I mean, it's just type. It's after everything, it's proper type design, and you you wouldn't really kind of go to a designer and say that how dare you use Times New Roman? You should use a font of your own. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't do that. So, I, I don't yeah. think that that's. I, I mean, people do have this point of view that if you don't even make the fonts, then what's the point? But I, I obviously don't fall into that. Uh, I asked this question um, uh, panel. The reaction was quite impressive uh, because I. Oh, it's Chip Kid. Of course, it was Chip Kid. Right. Uh, and I basically finished off the panel, and I'd love to. I'm going to bring you uh, so a little bit larger on the screen so we can get the reaction. What is your reaction when you hear the words Comic Sans now? Comic Sans? No. <laughs> I, I I I sort of agree. Uh, <laughs> um, that's the thing about I, I have no problem with Comic Sans. Um, I used to actually use it in my writing for a while. Because just just to type it in, like I mean, I I wouldn't I would never send Comic Sans documents, but I would use it in my writing software uh, because it makes the 
draft looked unfinished, like it's written by hand. So I used to do that. The thing is, it's not a bad font. The thing is, uh, if you if you look at it technically, it's a badly made font. But if you look at the conditions in which it was made and the way in which it was made, you understand why it exists the way it exists. The creator the creator made it for like a particular program on uh, you know by Microsoft, and he did his homework. Like he looked at uh, Dave Gibbons' lettering in Watchmen. I think he looked at John Costanza's lettering, and he made the font based on those. And I have no problem with it, except I, I wouldn't really use it in design because it's kind of badly kerned. And a lot of the shapes are perfectly fine, but but they're not designed to be kind of sitting together, I feel. Yeah. But but the thing is, they are, they are designed to, like, if you remember, if you've ever had Windows 98 or before, uh, you did not have this thing called clear type. So you did not have the manual hinting that goes around a font. So you would have these fonts that kind of occupied pixels and comic sans looked great in that because that's what it was made for it was made to be yeah. a pixel font so it's not made to be like you're not supposed to print stuff in it and you're not supposed to like look at it like properly hinted right so, so i mean if if so uh, if people don't know what hinting is hinting is basically filling up pixels with gray so that the black of the font looks smoother and a non-hinted font is like it's anti-aliased. So like yeah. you don't have any of those. It's just black spots. And Comic Sans looks great and when you look at it in, in a pixel version. And that's what it was built for. So I got no problem with Comic Sans, but I would wouldn't use it in my design. Ha Hassan Othman Elav has been doing this thread where he uses Comic Sans instead of regular fonts. And what you realize is that if you use it properly, it looks fine. <laughs> Fair enough. We've got Michael P, who's uh, joining us, saying I'd, I had no idea lettering was so complicated. <laughs> and I think that I think that's the thing that people don't understand the the craft of uh, of lettering and uh, how number one how difficult it is to do properly, uh, and for it to really kind of make a page and a, a book pop. But also, like I say, the pressure that uh, is put on yourself to. Uh, uh, to, to to deliver. It's interesting. Not, you not just about... that. Can I can I interject here? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, so if you look at any craft, any craft like blacksmithy or type design before, you know, you had software and stuff. Like I've, I've been watching a lot of histories of how type was designed and how type was cast in metal and stuff like that. Um, and you realize that almost every craft has its own weird things that only those people know. And nobody else really needs to know those things. Like nobody needs to know about manual hinting. Nobody needs to know about uh, how kerning used to basically be like you used to break those lead blocks so that those blocks would fit together. Nobody but a type designer and like a caster needs to know that. It's nice. It's like good information. And obviously it's like there's a lot of intricacies to different things. But I mean, I mean that's, not, that's not your job to know, right? That's our job to know. Sure. That's why we are the specialists. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, obviously, then uh, as specialists, I mean, the, the perception uh, from uh, most comic fans are is that, like I say, you are left very much down the the, the pecking order uh, when it comes to getting the book out. Uh, and there is that. I, I sense think that's that... changed because I think that's changed because um, I have been lucky enough to have a lot of like uh, after complaining about clients for a bit, <laughs> I have been lucky to have a lot of clients like Ram, like Darcy, um, like Chip Zdarsky. These people genuinely treat the lettering as important, uh, like James, for example. And 
like I never feel like an afterthought when I'm working with these people. And that's why I like to like any, any person that you see me doing more than three books with, like not at once, but over a period of time, those are mm-hmm. people that I trust to give the due importance that I need. And like, you know, the, they will throw stuff at me that challenges me. Uh, and they will, they, they know enough about lettering to know how it looks on the page and they will, you know, get me to change things. They will kind of, uh, they're a good feedback mechanism and they're kind of good to work with. So they are not, I mean, these, uh, Department of Truth has been a breeze sure. to work with. Well, I mean, let's, no... So let's, let's talk about uh, the Department of Truth then. I mean, I'm going to put a couple of pages up and um, I am going to put one of the first pages of issue three up, which came out uh, today. So if you are uh, not, if you haven't bought it yet and you're wanting to stay completely uh, clean of uh, Department of Truth, just be aware that that's on the way. Um, but let's talk about the relationship then. You've got uh, James Tynan uh, on writing. You've got uh, Martin Simmons on art. Yourself on lettering. Um, and the book looks And Dylan incredible. Todd and Steve Fox as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The book looks incredible. And also there's some very interesting design choices in the lettering and in the, uh, the bubble design. Um, if we can talk about um, how that evolved for Department of Truth. Sure. Um, the balloon style was one of those times when I did one and they just liked it. Um, I gave them another choice, but nobody really cared about that one. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, sometimes you feel like, you know, I'm going kind of too out there here, so I need to give them another choice so that they know that I'm not bonkers. Uh, so I basically did this, and this is this is based on another book that I did called Blood Moon with uh, John Pearson and PM Buchan, Philip Buchan. And the balloons kind of looked a lot like this one. And I feel like John and Martin's styles have some kind of similarities. They're kind of simpatico. When we came to do this book, I, I had this idea that, okay, this is a book about rewriting reality. The lettering needs to look a little unsteady. And that's when I thought of the Blood Moon style. And I realized that, okay, what if I do it almost like I'm doing it twice, like I'm lettering the book twice. So once in white and one with the border. So the border and the the, the white are coming from slightly different places. So, I mean, if I can be so pretentious, it's like overwriting stuff. Like, I mean, just like the book has people overwriting reality, I'm kind of overwriting my own lettering. And that was the sort of idea I had and I presented to them and I was like, look, if you think this is too weird, here's this other style that looks perfectly normal. It looks perfectly nice. We could do that. And they just loved this one. And we did go back and forth on the captions a bit because uh, the typewritten captions were not what I thought of initially. But then James was like, you know, think about this. Like, this is also somebody like, uh, I, I think he said something like, you know, this is somebody trying to kind of write a classified document almost. So could we have that captions was, that look a little like that? That was going to be my next one because it, it, it was an it's for myself it's an interesting choice that it is kind of like a typewriter or typewritten yeah. font. Yeah, it's it's actually based on an actual typewriter. Uh, it's called like a Senta Schreib machine. So okay. it's it's based on that. So that that was what we kind of did. And when it came to like issues three, because we had done a different caption style for this one. I felt like we could kind of push that as well, another extent. And again, like do the thing of uh, these are caption boxes sort of being overwritten by each other, which is why you have those two boxes 
uh, behind everyone. I mean, lettering this book is a lot of work, but I love it because I'm literally <laughs> doing everything twice. It and is... I draw these. I mean, these are not pre-made balloons or anything. I draw all of these. So, yeah. so you're, put, you're putting the workload in uh, for this yeah. book. I, I mean, how, what's the kind of time frame then for this? I mean, you, you've talked about how accommodating uh, James and Martin have been for yourself as yeah. part of the creative process. How long has it been or how long would it take to do an issue of Department of Truth? So if a, if a usual 22-pager is something that I would give two days for, Department of Truth is something that I like to keep aside three to four days for. Wow. Um, yeah, because because like it's literally like I'm, I'm drawing all of those things twice. I don't always need those because uh, sometimes you get into the groove and you just kind of knock it out. But I don't think I've ever gotten less than like a couple of weeks to do one of these. Even even right now, like we are we are we are planning issue number f four or five, and we are we are already planning it like a month ahead. So to kind of figure out when it where it will fall on my schedule. That's pretty good. Like because they realize that there's a lot of work involved here, they would like me to kind of have the time. So I think once in a while, like Martin will do a black and white version, and I'll letter over that, and then we'll adjust the colors. But that's not a, like a major adjustment. So that that kind of works out. And yeah. uh, the, another book which I'm a huge fan of at the moment, which uh, you're doing. I mean, admittedly, we're only one issue in. I'm still wait. I'm still waiting on Alex Packnadel to get me issue number two. If you wouldn't mind, Alex, uh, if you can get that uh, through, if you want I could send it to you, like I have, I have it on my <laughs> I am, I'm, I've been more than happy to check out. I'm one because... of the creators, like, I mean, Alex can't see yeah. Jack. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Giga is a book which, I, I was curious about your choices that you were making, especially for the robotic um, uh, voices. You weren't going completely off the, the, the grid. You were keeping um, a, a very kind of a, tra a traditional robot voice, uh, which is a bit strange. Yeah, those traditional talk... medieval robot voices from the 70s. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Can you talk about Giga and the, the process of uh, putting the, the work together for that? Yeah, like funnily enough, I don't think this was the style I started with. I had a much more traditional regular balloon style and stuff. But Giga kind of bounced around a couple of places before it landed at Walt. So we had been working on the first issue, like not the first issue, but the pitch. Uh, I think the, the first issue started around like six or seven months after the pitch was done. And by that time, I had already done Coffin Bound. And when I came back to doing Giga and I saw the colored pages, uh, and actually, John had changed his style a bit in the meantime. So the first version of Giga that we did for the pitch, it did not have any halftones and stuff. And then John kind of did a new version for the final issue. And I just felt like, you know what? No, I, I think I can react to like the specificities of this issue by kind of integrating a little bit of the coffin bound style. So I kept the balloons same, the, the same as they were, but instead of the regular you know, traditional tales. I did these like black lines with a little white shadow under them. And once I did that, I felt like Laurel's text kind of came naturally because, because she's a robot, but she's a specific kind of robot. Like she's, she's not actually a robot. She's like an AI, right? She's an artificial yeah. intelligence. So I needed to feel like this is a person, this is a sentient being just of a slightly different kind. And I always feel like if you're going to push weirder in one part of your style, 
you should kind of have a basis of solidity that the reader can follow basically right like with department of truth the font itself is very readable like i'm i wouldn't use like a weird font with a weird balloon style i mean i might sometimes but <laughs> like so here i felt like okay there is a there's a basic readability to everything before we kind of push it into slightly weirder directions hmm. So that's what which I meant. There's, the, there's some very weird stuff coming in Giga number two, like where I've, where I'm. I've been warned. <laughs> I, yeah, have been, so, I have been warned. Yeah, so I I do push it uh, slightly off the rails in issue two, but I think it's just for specific places. That's that's what right. I feel. Like I think I think like that the the Tom Ozykowski study. Like I've been basically studying his lettering for the last couple of years, and what I feel that has taught me is that. If you have a core of solidity, then you can do really weird stuff that people still integrate and they don't even get phased by it. So I feel like I, I want to try kind of doing that consistently. Uh, the, the two questions I certainly wanted to ask is, I mean, number one was interesting that you were talking about the Facebook forums that you're a member of. Uh, I, I, I find it interesting that there is a collective of comic book letterers all kind of coming together and kind of Yeah, where we whinge about, about our customers all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. That's what was, yeah. What's, what is that support system like within uh, the industry? I, I think it's, uh, part of it is about identifying with each other. Part of it is about, yeah. you know, sometimes when you're re having a really hard day, you don't need anybody to give you a solution, but you want people to say, I feel you. So that, that forum is really useful for that. But on the other hand, um, I found the lettering forum to be incredibly welcoming because when I was learning my craft, it's the people that I work with now, like the, my peers. Those are the people who kind of helped me out in my early days, like people like Todd Klein, Nate Picos, Jim Campbell, Tom Ozikowski, Clem Robbins. These are all people that made me feel welcome when I was a newbie. And I feel like it's my duty to kind of, you know, push that forward. And we still have that kind of water cooler thing where, uh, you know, we can just... You know, sometimes like sometimes there's one page too many where the first speaker is on the right and you just want to post it somewhere and just what the fuck is guy? Sorry. What the hell is this guy thinking? Sorry. <laughs> you were, you were I, fine. I don't you're know fine. if cursing is okay in your. your you're fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Great. Because I, because I edited myself a lot during this podcast already. Uh, but yeah, like uh, sometimes you just want to say what the fuck is this guy thinking, but you don't want to say what to say it publicly. You don't really want to. I mean, you're not really yeah. angry at anybody. It's just that, ah, just, just and, and, it, and it's also to an audience that understands your frustrations and exactly. Uh, yeah, Half yeah, the time, absolutely. you don't even have to write anything about it. You just post the page, and they they know exactly what you're bugged about. Sure. And sometimes, uh, sometimes you have this thing where, okay, you know what? You've tried like five different solutions for a page, but you just it's just not working. So then you can throw it to other letters, and they can sort of say like, okay, what if you did this in tunnel one, and what if you just move this? And then you may have a solution at the end. So it's really helpful, actually. It's really nice. It's a good question. I can imagine. And uh, the second question I wanted to ask is about um, knowing how busy busy you are. But you you say that you uh, are very uh, much an avid uh, comics reader. Is there anyone that's kind of jumped out and uh, kind of made you? Do you mean among letters? I think I think I missed half that question. So no, yeah, amongst letters, uh, right. the, you know, le letters of comics at the moment where you've You've just been impressed by the work you've seen. Well, there's. Uh, I think. I think currently I tend to look at uh, Deron Bennett, then Clayton Coles, Russ Wooten, and 
Nate Pickles will Nate Pickles like not only does he make amazing fonts, he's also a very like versatile and interesting letterer. So you can always see you can see some stuff being pushed in all these people's work. And then there's Hassan. And I feel like Hassan and I are in kind of friendly competition all the time. Because every time, <laughs> because half the time, like the before anybody else sees what he's doing, he's kind of posting it to me at some point of time. And then once in a while, I just be like, what the, where the fuck did you pull that from? Like, I want, I should have done that. Like, I should have been the one doing that. And then, cool. you, want, then you want to push it in the next one so that you can, I can shove it in his face. So... Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So um, that's, that's but, the competition sort of like that's I I mean I I will always like I think Darren specific uh, especially also has this this thing where he'll do like these very interesting styles. Steve Wands as well. Um, I mean Steve Wands did some very interesting stuff in his Hill House books recently where he was doing like different shapes. And then like when I was working on a recent book, I looked at that and I was like, how can I kind of push this particular direction forward? without necessarily looking exactly like what Steve Steve is doing. So all these letters kind of are like a huge inspiration. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I think I think an early inspiration was Rush Wooten because Rush, uh, I think his lettering in Thor the Mighty Avenger, I could sort of see what he was doing where he was kind of evoking John Workman, but he wasn't imitating him. He was kind of doing something else of his own. And that's always interesting to me. I would rather never imitate anybody, but if I can sort of see it as a tribute act. That like like my Hellblazer run. Like I don't think it looks like what Tom Orzikowski does, but it's very much my sort of tribute to his what I what I feel is interesting about his work. Sure, uh, I mean for myself, uh, I've I mean I'm not only uh, impressed by uh, the man's artwork, but also with what he does with his lettering because he he letters his own books uh, and he uh, he does some incredible stuff with the the. Uh, you're going to have to help me out with the, the terminology as well. The the the, the actual bubble um, tails. Uh, tails. That's it. Right. Are you talking about Sansa Kay? Yeah. Uh, well, this is the uh, the name because uh, I know for a fact I'm going to butcher it if I try and say it out loud. I have oh, no idea how. Stepan. I have no idea how to pronounce his surname. So <laughs> I, I think it's Stepan. Uh... Stepan. Yeah. Stepan Sejic. Uh, we'll, we'll I think so. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm yeah, not absolutely. Expecting. But I mean, what he what he's been doing with um uh, with his certainly with his creator own stuff is just uh, what he does with his tales and how he balances yeah. and weights his work is is incredible. Um, we'll ask one more question and then we'll let you get off and enjoy the rest of your evening. And it is about the 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 ones that started it all off. The, the ones back in the 1950s, the 1960s, the early days of comics. How much do you go back and look at that work and uh, how much inspiration do you take from that doing what you do today? I absolutely do. Like, um, you know, I kind of try and, uh, I try and follow letterers for a little bit. So I'll kind of get obsessed with one person's work and then I'll kind of see everything, all the different things that they did over the years. Um, I think the most versatile one is Gaspar Saladino, as we were talking about. What he was doing in the 1950s and what he was doing in the 1980s, there's this, there's a complete like sea change between the two. And he's you can kind of go to every decade and he's been doing like five different things. Then uh, I, I forget his name, but Will Eisner's letterer was um, like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't I don't remember his name, uh, but he was... Uh, because Will Eisner didn't letter his own stuff for a, at least I don't think he'd letter the majority of it. So he was a kind of an early pioneer in some ways. 
Then there was Milton Kanif's letterer, who, who by the way, is a huge inspiration for European comics in general, because um, I believe uh, it was GJ, like the artist GJ, who looked at Milton Kanif's uh, strips and realized that they could be doing like that kind of even looking lettering. And then GJ did his own style and then Mobius and all these other people, Francois, uh, Francois Bo, or I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, yeah. but like all these people kind of learned from GJ and that's where you kind of get the European style that you sort of see now, um, which has, which is sort of what we think of as the Mobius style, but it's actually kind of goes further back and it goes back to American comics, like even further back. So it, it's kind of Milton Kenneth's letterer who inspired all of these things. So then, then there's Alex Toth who lettered his own work a lot of the time and did like a fantastic job. So I do, I do definitely go backwards. Um, I, I've been kind of recently obsessed with the Archie comics lettering, uh, which is Jack Morelli. And before that it's, uh, I think Ben Oda is a part of that, but who else? There's, there's a couple of letters whose name I'm not recalling right now, but they have like very specific styles that they kind of did for decades. And then there's, as you say, like Annie Parkhouse, Tom Frame, Ellie DeVille, these people who did work with uh, 2080. So I think every decade has its own people. Like, so the sixties, I feel it's like Artie Simek and Sam Rosen. Then the seventies is Joe Rosen and uh, John Costanza and these people. So every decade has somebody kind of that to look at. And that signature style of a decade. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think you go back into the forties and the interesting thing, thing that you find in the forties is that lettering wasn't really codified at the time. So you, you find people doing like really weird stuff and not really thinking twice about it. So you'll have like these uh, balloons that look like clouds or, or you'll have these uh, tails that look like almost like speed lines. So there's no, there's no standardization back then. So people are doing kind of weird stuff. And I look back at that and I kind of try and uh, pull that in. For example, like uh, a very early lettering used to be almost like an actual balloon coming from like somebody's lip and you, come back to European comics and you see somebody like GP is doing, still doing that now, right? Like these teardrop shaped balloons. So you can kind of pull that. Like I think, I think Hassan is doing that in some, one of his recent books where you can kind of pull inspiration from people that have been forgotten. Yeah. So um, I think, I think everybody's kind of building on each other on top of each other's work. Right. So um, very quickly for Will Eisner, it was uh, Abe Kang Kangston. Kangison, K A N E G S O N. So yeah, that that's the Kings, Kingston. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think Milton Kanif also had like a one specific guy who did certain things. Again, I, I know all these names, but my memory is like a sieve, so I forget. I forget <laughs> well, that uh, to to wrap things up then, and to send you on your way. Uh, where is the best place for people to kind of get a handle on? the history of uh, lettering, the, the general uh, style and craft. Is there certain places that you would point people uh, to go to if they wanted to get into or find out more? If you just want to find out more about lettering and its history and stuff, Todd Klein has been doing a series of blog posts about the history of lettering. And um, like, for example, right now he's running a series of just Ira Schnapp uh, covers from like the 50s and the 60s and stuff. But he also has a series on the history of lettering and how stuff evolved, especially how digital lettering kind of came into being. And he's currently writing a book that I, I don't know when he's, when it's going to be out, but I think he's writing a book about the history of lettering, oh, wow. uh, Western comics lettering at least. 
other than that um if you want to learn how to letter i think you can go to jim campbell's uh, sorry jim campbell's blog where he has a guide and he's kind of written a lot of articles i got my start at uh, balloontales.com which is uh, which is kind of tips from comic crafts lettering guide book um and that was really useful for me uh, as a you know free starting point uh, there's also the dc comics guide to coloring and lettering comics uh, which is the lettering part is written by um, uh, by Todd Klein again and the coloring part is written by Mark Shirillo uh, both of them are amazing um, uh, but Todd's part is probably a little outdated now because the software has kind of developed over the last 10 to 12 years quite a bit so you might want to find something a little more like you might want to start there and then talk to other letterers to figure out ways that you could do certain things more easily um, but that's a good starting point there are a couple of there is there are still lettering forums on Facebook where a lot of these letters still hang out and I think you can look for tips but also you can just talk to people because uh, most letters would be happy to help because it's it's all self-taught here like I don't I mean there there are a couple of lettering courses but I don't I don't actually know any professional letterer who's gone through those courses I, I mean they, yeah. there might be but most of the professional letters I know are self-taught so. I mean, you can just start and see where you go from there. I think it's that possibly that element as well, where with what people are doing with lettering, um, it is about uh, creating and uh, developing your own style. And okay, you can get the fundamentals from a course, but at the end of the day, if you're self-taught, you are effectively uh, inventing yourself. So yeah, and I think uh, I think it's also kind of important to make certain mistakes. I mean, there are certain basic mistakes that you don't need to do, and you, you'll find those in any lettering guide, even like Blambot's uh, uh, lettering grammar, like I think it's comics grammar or something like that, where you can kind of figure out, okay, these are the things not to do. Apart from that, I think you need to make those mistakes to kind of figure out, like figure them out by yourself, because there are certain internal logics that need to be figured out by you, because it is after, an, after all an art and a craft rather than, it's not clerk work. It's not just pasting in no. text. So you have to kind of come at it by yourself. Yeah, and I think that's the reason why I wanted to have you on because it is absolutely, even I recognize, it is absolutely not that. It is uh, very much a, a, a craft, uh, which is, for me, like I say, one of the essential uh, elements of comics. Listen, I, I actually I see myself, uh, I actually see the letterer as the final arbiter of the read because the fact is, even if your artist has composed the page beautifully, we can fuck it up if we want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't done it yet, so uh, you've done pretty well for yourself. Hope not. Uh, <laughs> so there we go. Listen, I want to say thank you so much indeed for coming on. Um, and, this is a lot uh, of talking fun. To us really it's really been it. it's been a blast. I mean, I I know it hasn't been um, possibly as uh, macro as uh, a, a if it was a letter talking to a letter. Uh, I can imagine there would no, be but, a little bit. See, I think I think we have a like I mean, letterers have a lot of shared grammar. So we sort of sometimes we don't really know what the audience might want to hear about because we kind of know the basics. So it's really good to have somebody kind of asking from um, from the outside because yeah. it so, is a specialist field. And I mean, I see. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure some letterers would love for everybody to appreciate exactly how complicated our job is. But I think for the most, I feel like, you know what, I'm happy 
no that nobody understands like 90% of the things what i'm looking for in my collaborators is a good design sense like yeah. they i i don't need them to tell me what font size to use and you know how much spacing to leave between the lines and stuff but i would like them to kind of be able to tell whether what i am doing fits with what they are doing and sure. you know that's what we need to understand that are these things working together because lettering by itself doesn't really mean anything it's it's when it sits on a page and it integrates with the artwork and that's what we are looking for like you don't need to know you don't need to know how to do what i do like you need to be a film director right like a film director doesn't necessarily know how to uh, do set design or whatever but they need to know if things look right yeah and that's what i look for in my clients and i think even in an audience i think all i need everybody like reviewers and people to know is that okay did it look right or not yeah i mean i think what you also need from your collaborators is to make damn sure that they leave space for the work that you do <laughs> um <laughs> we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave thankfully that that's thankfully that's not a problem for the last four or five years at least uh, before <laughs> that it was quite yeah. a bit Excellent. Um, uh, we've got ourselves uh, this uh, banner, which I can put up, which is your um, uh, your Twitter, uh, where people can yep. find out more about what you're doing. Uh, I mean, is there, can you rattle off the the books that you are currently involved in? So we've talked Department of Truth, we've talked Giga. Um, what else is kind of on the cards, which people will be seeing your work on at the moment? There's Homesick Pilots that I think starts serializing in December. Yep. Uh, there's the picture of everything else again with Dan Waters. Then with Ram V, I'm working on uh, the Swamp Thing Future State books uh, in January and February. Then we we are doing like a couple of other books together, which are not really like announced yet or whatever. Then there's uh, Future State Dark Detective. That's a four issue thing uh, that I'm doing with Mariko Tamaki and Dan Mora. Then uh, what else? <laughs> there's Precious Metal coming up. I guess late next year. I actually don't know when it's coming out. Then what does this Giga? Um, okay, I do do a lot of books. <laughs> it's just it's just suddenly hit home. How many? But also, 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 I, I, I might remember all of them, but the thing is, I don't know which ones are announced and which ones are not announced yet. Good so, point. like most many of the books that I'm doing are like you know three months in the future or something. So yeah. there's something I'm doing with Denise Camp, which is I don't think has been announced yet. Um, then there's uh, Wind with James Tynan as well, um, which I think Volume Two starts sometime next year. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a lot of lot of books. That's that's what I can remember right now. Yeah, uh, um, there's a few short stories in uh, DC Comics, but I'm I'm not entirely sure where they fit exactly. Um, I mean, I, I must say, I'm go I'm going to be talking to the. Um, the White Noise Boys on Sunday because we're having a special episode with, with just them. Uh, I will say what you've done with Homesick Pilots is also bloody impressive. So uh, no, thank congratulations! You, thank you. Congratulations! Well, that was that, that was really fun to do because I was I was really intimidated because I know like I've I hung out with Casper for like a few times before I started working with him, and the thing is I know that the man has damn good taste, and I'm a <laughs> fan already. Like Limbo is one of my favorite comics. So when they kind of approached me for homesick pilots, I was legitimately intimidated because I was like, I don't want like because if if I fuck this up, Casper's gonna be angry. <laughs> Fair but enough. I think I am glad to say he was really happy with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's very, it's a very, very impressive piece of work. So that's the Twitter. Um, where else is there uh, best for people to go to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, there's Instagram, which is Aditya Bidikar, because somebody else has Aditya B. And then there's adityab.net, where, which is sort of like, I mean, it's a portfolio site at this point. I don't really update it regularly, but uh, you can sign up on for my newsletter there. Or you can sign up sign up there, or you can sign up at adityab.substack.com. And that's a much more regular thing. Like I, I write it hopefully every week, but sometimes I skip a week. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like I say, you've been uh, incredibly busy, so we can understand if every once in a while the the newsletter gets a little bit delayed in the post. But yeah, this this time it got delayed because I was writing. Uh, <laughs> I, I I contributed a short story to a prose anthology, uh, charity anthology this month. So nice. that that's why the newsletter got delayed this time. <laughs> Fair enough. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Indeed. Likewise. Um, I I do keep threatening that. Certainly for like Thought Bubble or, or Lakes or wherever, I will because it's the one thing that doesn't get represented at Comic Cons for myself. And I want to try and get something organized. Um, if that happens, hopefully. that'd be amazing. And I generally come to Thought Bubble every year. So, I mean, well, I'd be happy to be on that. If I can get it organized, I would love to have you on. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Aditya, thank you Likewise. so much indeed for coming on. Cheers, Excellent. man. Take care. Bye. Look after yourself. Excellent. Um, once again, I'm going to be putting it. I'll put. Let's put his artwork back up on the screen because my God, um, do go check it out. Go check out his Twitter. Uh, check out the books that he's doing. I mean, <laughs> let's do it again. There you go. There's that bad boy. It is uh, the Department of Truth. What a hell of a book. Um, do go check it out. Well worth uh, your time and your effort. Thank you very much indeed to uh, uh, Aditya there. Right. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us for this. Uh, it's been our incidental episode, uh, which we've been running, like I say, on the Wednesdays throughout the UK lockdown. Now, um, we were going to be doing one next Wednesday as well. Uh, a slight hiccup on that, uh, in that I've got myself a new job. And they've got me my rotors, and I'm working next Wednesday. So I'm slightly buggered. Uh, the good news is the guest that I had lined up for next Wednesday's show has agreed to move to the Thursday. So we're going to be doing the incidental episode on the Thursday instead. Um, like I say, we've got ourselves uh, some great guests on the way. This Sunday, we are going to be talking to the White Noise guys, and all four of them are going to be joining us. It's kind of almost like a, a bookending kind of uh, panel because we've... Uh, we had ourselves uh, the uh, kind of initial uh, introduction to the uh, uh, the White Noise Studios concept, the idea of what uh, the whole uh, idea of what they were doing with the uh, uh, the studios, the, the umbrella of uh, what they were doing, and that was at uh, uh, MCM Comic Con in London two years ago, and it was almost exactly two years ago. What they've been doing in those two years has been absolutely mind-blowing. Um, they really have just gone from strength to strength. Alex Patnadal, Ram V, Dan Waters, and Ryan O'Sullivan. Looking forward to talking to them. That's going to be this Sunday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. And if uh, Ditya's name is not mentioned several times, uh, I think it's safe to say uh, you're going to be hearing uh, his, uh, his uh, praises being sung uh, on Sunday. So... That's this Sunday, uh, White Noise Studios. The Wednesday show is shifted to the Thursday, and we're going to be talking to George C. Romero. Uh, now, this is the son, obviously, of the legendary 
um, Dawn of the Dead uh, director. However, he's somebody who directs his own films, uh, has uh, taken on the mantle of the Dawn of the Dead legacy, also creating uh, uh, the uh, writing the Dawn of the Dead uh, uh, series and several strips for heavy metal. Uh, so we're going to be talking to George C. Romero. That's going to be on Thursday, the 3rd of December. Sunday after, Sunday the 6th of December, we're going to be talking to Amanda Divert, um, somebody who's been doing an, an incredible array of uh, writing um, and uh, somebody who's uh, incredibly inspiring for myself as uh, a creative person. We're going to be talking to Mark Serby at the end of that episode as well, so it's a bit of a double header on that one. Uh, and then on Sunday the 13th, we're going to be talking to Bob Fingerman and Matt Medney from Heavy Metal Magazine. Um, these are incredible people. I hope you would join us for the episodes coming up. Thank you very much indeed to uh, everyone for uh, joining us for this show. And uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, hit notifications, hit comment below. Let us know what you thought of it. And um, yes, hopefully you can join us for our White Noise Studios special this Sunday on Talking Com, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Do take care, enjoy the rest of your uh, week, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego is a production of the Convention Collective. Visit the Convention Collective for all of your convention news and updates. And support the podcast at patreon.com Englishman SDCC.